morning. It's good to be here with you guys once again. Children, up through second grade, you guys can be dismissed now. The buzz on the street is that the men have been baking. And the word on the street is that these desserts are going to be so delicious, they will blow your mind. Even though they might be a little unsightly. I think that it is always dangerous when men are using their carpentry skills to bake. But Tommy, I'm sure you will frame that cake up real nice. Come out tonight, enjoy these cakes that these men have been working on. I'm sure it will be a good time with the church family. The past few weeks, we have been in a series entitled, Why Love the Church, talking about our love for the church. Next week will be an exciting celebration in which your new pastor, Michael, is installed and begins his journey with you. And so as a bridge between this series, the season that we've been in, talking about our love for the church, and in this new series that you are entering into with a new pastor, today I want to talk about our love for church leaders. Why love your pastor? You can imagine that this isn't an easy subject for pastors themselves to preach on. Most pastors have this bent towards servant leadership, and so it's hard for them to stand before their people and say, you should love me. So it's much easier for me, when I'm not your pastor, to say, you should love your pastor, than to say, you should love me, right? So that's why I'm taking this opportunity to tell you why you should love your pastor and church leaders. It's an issue that's clearly addressed in Scripture, and we're going to deal with it here today. How do you feel when all of a sudden you realize that you are being watched? Okay, have you ever been driving along, and all of a sudden you realize that there is a police officer behind you? All of a sudden you start remembering everything that you were taught in driver's ed. You quickly check your speed. You put your hands 10 and 2. You're checking your mirrors like 18 times before you switch lanes. You come to a complete stop. You turn your signal on way before you ever come to the intersection. You dare not look at your phone, right? And every time that you make a turn and that police officer follows, follows you, you get a little more anxious because you realize you are being watched. Right? Walk into a grocery store and you'll see yourself on a video monitor. They're reminding you, you are being watched. Pull into a neighborhood and you see signs that say community watch. They're reminding you, you are being watched. And we typically don't like being watched, do we? I have a neighbor who watches us. Um, yeah, one, one day, I, I learned this one day when the doorbell rings, and I go to the door, and I open it, and it's our neighbor, and she goes, oh, good, you're okay. I was like, what do you mean, of course I'm okay? What, why did you think I wasn't okay? And she said, oh, well, I noticed that your garage door had been left open for several hours, and you usually don't leave your garage door open. I was like, okay, didn't realize you were taking notes. Then another time, I'm getting out of my car in the driveway. I'm walking into the house, and this neighbor, she comes out of her house, and she yells to get my attention. And she says, Brian, you've dropped a receipt, and you didn't pick it up. 
I was like, really? <laughs> How close do you have to be watching me to see a receipt fall out of my pocket when I'm getting out of the car? I'm sure she wasn't just walking by the window carrying a load of laundry and she observed that. She had to have been watching pretty close. Now, she's a very sweet lady and I appreciate her concern, but now every time I go out the front door, I am thinking, is she watching me? <laughs> we don't like to be watched because we like our privacy. We're independent people who, who prize personal freedom. As a rule, we don't like interference or judgment or accountability from other people. But when left alone, and allowed to do our own things, our own ways, we are at a much higher risk to destroy ourselves. Isolating yourself is detrimental to your soul. Last night, Lindsay and I, we were just kind of chilling out, relaxing. She'd bake some cookies because when you're eight months pregnant, that's what you do. You bake cookies. And I love that. And after she baked those cookies, we had a little couch time in which we watched a TV show and we relaxed and enjoyed those cookies. And then after our show ended, Lindsay says, okay, I'm going upstairs. I'm going to go get ready for bed. So she does, and then I walk into the kitchen and I notice the oven was still on. Left to herself with her pregnancy brain, had I not come and watched after her, our house would be melting right now. We need to be watched, even though we don't like it. And on a more serious note, thank God that he has given us the church and the leaders of the church to watch after us. God has given us the church and he's given us the leaders of the church to guide us and keep us from drifting off course. Today we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is especially concerned with our propensity to drift away. Drift as in prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So while you go to Hebrews chapter 13, which is the last chapter of the book, I need to give you a brief overview of the book of Hebrews so that we can place chapter 13 in its context. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, and we also don't know whom it was specifically written to. But reading through this book makes it clear that whoever this recipient was of this book, this letter, they were in need of encouragement to persevere and stay the course. Perhaps the recipients of this letter were growing tired of persecution and being sinned against. Perhaps that they were battling temptation. Perhaps they were troubled in their own consciousness over the sins that they had committed. Perhaps that they were gravitating towards a return to Judaism and a works-based sanctification. Or perhaps they needed encouragement to persevere and stay the course because they had simply grown apathetic and they didn't care. Whatever the presenting issue, they needed motivation and encouragement to not 
quit. The author knew that people are like sheep and that we are prone to go our own way and go astray. So he writes in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This whole idea of praying a prayer once and you've made your reservations in heaven when you die is foreign to the Bible. Repentance and faith and surrender to God are to be ongoing throughout the entire life of the follower of Jesus. Jesus himself said in Mark 13, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so over and over again in Scripture, the greatest evidence of genuine faith and real salvation is perseverance to the end. So the writer of Hebrews is encouraging believers to persevere. And there are dozens of places throughout the book of Hebrews where he urges his readers to join with him in actions of continuation and pressing forward. The author also gives his readers many examples of Old Testament believers. Saints like Abraham who patiently endured the hardships in this life in order to receive what God had promised them in the next life. These human examples are given in stark contrast to the example of Esau who foolishly gave up his blessing by giving in to one immediate craving. It's interesting that these are Old Testament people that the author of Hebrews gives as examples. They are people who have completed their course, who have exited from this life, and we can observe how they finished the race of life. Of course, the best example for people in need of encouragement to persevere is Jesus himself. Because Jesus is superior in every way. The author of Hebrews is clear that Jesus is the Son of God. And he came to this earth and walked in human skin. He faced the same temptations we do, yet without sin. Jesus endured shame and hostility. And Jesus obediently endured an undeserved death on a cross because he was anticipating the glory that was ahead. Of course, Jesus already had glory before he even came to this earth. So the glory that Jesus was looking ahead to was glory in which we could join him in. And it is this resolve, this hope of a future promise by God that the author of Hebrews is using to motivate his recipients to endure, to not quit. This is what some people call future grace. It's banking on the promises that God has made 
to us. And the promises that God has made to us are a sure thing. We can be guaranteed of them because of the promises that God has already fulfilled to us in Christ. Jesus, God promised a deliverer, and Jesus is that deliverer. There is great promise for those who do not flounder under temporary compulsions, but remain committed to Christ and the community that he has placed them in. So the entire point of the book of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better than anything else you may be tempted to chase. So stay the course. Stay fixed on Jesus. Keep the faith. That's the point of this whole book. And so in this context, there is need for vigilant watch care. Watch out that you are not given in to desires that lead you astray. Watch out that you are not persuaded by false doctrines. Watch out for the blinding effects of sin. Watch, watch, watch. Watch the example of others who have gone before you. Watch the example of Jesus. And then we come to chapter 13. It's the last chapter in the book. And this writer has a desire to see the recipients again. But he doesn't know that he'll ever be able to. He doesn't know that he will ever see them again. And so he is not wasting words in chapter 13. He is giving them everything that he knows to give them for a people who need encouragement to persevere. And isn't it interesting that the conclusion of a doctrinally heavy, theologically profound book, it's all about relationships. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. It's about relationships. And here again, we see that right doctrine, right belief, leads to right living. A proper love for God expresses itself in love for others. And then in verse 17, which is our verse under focus today, the author writes about the relationship between a pastor and his people. So read with me Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What a tough verse for our independent selves to swallow. We don't like to be told to obey. We don't like to be told to submit. We don't like the idea of surveillance and accountability. The word for obey here is it's a broad word. And it means be persuaded by. Trust rely on and it comes to mean obey because that's what you do when you trust somebody if i walked into a room and, and i looked at my wife and i told her i said don't move hold still even without her knowing why i was telling her not to move and to stand still because she trusts me she would do that 
obedience in this sense is based upon trust. So the image that you should get in your mind is not the image of military rank and file where the pastor is the general barking commands to march here and march there to those under him. I know some of you have experienced pastoral leadership that is very authoritarian and domineering, and that's regretful. Because the relationship between a pastor and his people should be built on trust. The word for submit is a little more difficult for us to get a good word picture of because the only time that this word is found in the whole entire New Testament is right here. But it has the image of yielding out of respect. I can think of times where I was in a staff meeting and all the other ministry directors were kind of around the table and we we have this agenda and we're trying to, to figure out the best course and the best planning for these ministries. And and then the senior pastor would walk in. And and he's the boss. He's the leader. And so when he comes in, we put our agenda aside in order to let him bring his agenda to the table. Right? And so this idea of submit, it's a respectful yielding. It's saying, out of respect to who you are, Your agenda goes before ours. Your voice is more important to be heard than ours in this situation. So here's how we could sum up this command to obey and submit to your leaders. It's that you should have a bent toward trusting your leaders. Toward trusting your pastor. You should have a disposition within yourself to be supportive in both your attitudes and your actions to their goals. You should have a happy inclination to comply with their instructions. Do you have this bent toward trusting your leaders? Now, understand that If there is not trust, there will be speculation. It's either trust or speculation. Please understand that pastors who are vigilantly watching and caring for your souls are going to be pastors who are constantly evaluating the effectiveness of everything that a church does. And what was effective 10 years ago might not be effective today. What was effective six months ago might not be effective today. And so if a pastor who is observing and evaluating everything that the church does believes that a ministry is not accomplishing its goal of making disciples and equipping followers of Jesus to be mature in Christ, then that pastor will lead to change things up. Sometimes a pastor might choose to do away with a ministry or to change the emphasis and focus of a ministry or to introduce new ministries. And oftentimes when a pastor does that in an established Baptist church, he is entering into dark and murky waters because how will the people respond? Well, there are two ways that people respond. 
One way is that some people will give the pastor their trust. They will obey and joyfully comply because they trust that the pastor's intentions are to lead the church in ways that glorify God and are for the ultimate good of the people. But others will begin to speculate. He's trying to get rid of our ministry. He only wants things done his way. He doesn't care about our group. Do you see how people can speculate about a pastor's motives? When that pastor is trying to initiate change and lead in a new direction. And get this. Sometimes speculators comply. Sometimes speculators go along with the change, but they never do so joyfully. They never do it with joy. Speculation is very dangerous because speculation erodes trust and it sows dissent. It begins to question a leader's credibility. And speculation grows into bitterness. And bitterness grows into resentment. And where there is resentment between the people and the pastor, the unity of the church is broken. And Jesus' reputation to the community is damaged. This is tragic because we as the church are the people who have been called upon to show the world that Jesus is better than anything else. But when there's disunity, we are showing the world that Jesus is no better than me having my own way. So even if you are a committed member who goes along with the directions of your leaders, do you do it with joy or speculation? Now, my role here with you over the past few months has been unique. I have been more of a fill-in preacher than a pastor who has led you. But even though that we've had our unique relationship, I am so encouraged by how so many of you have been supportive in both your attitudes and your actions. And I have no idea why you would be supportive and follow a young whippersnapper like me. I don't know. I don't get it. But I can recall specific conversations with specific people in this room where you showed me respect that I didn't deserve. You showed me deference. And it was a great joy to lead you in the very small ways that I have. This has been an encouraging place for me. This has been an affirming place for me. This has been a good place for me and my wife to be these past few months. And we have enjoyed it so much. So thank you. Thank you. There are others of you, I'm sure, though, that have a hard time trusting your pastor and your leaders. Some of you realize this and are working on it, and I commend you for that. Some, you're unaware of this. Perhaps that you've been badly hurt by a pastor that you did trust, and he abused your trust. For that, I am deeply sorry. Perhaps you trusted a pastor who led you well and you had a great relationship with him. 
But when he moved, it hurt. And so now your bent is to just keeping a little distance the next time with the next guy because you don't want to be hurt like that again. What I'm doing today is preaching on one single verse and there can be great danger in preaching on one single verse if it is extracted from its context. Right, so let's remember to interpret any one specific verse in light of the rest of Scripture. I don't want to minimize the impact of this verse in calling you to trust your pastors and if you have not trusted your pastors, to repent of that. But also understand that Scripture is not elevating pastors as infallible or untouchable. Okay, I don't want to give you the idea that pastors live on this higher plane, this higher level. God intends the church to be led by qualified men who faithfully teach God's word, who lead in the direction of the church, and who watch after the souls of the people entrusted under his care. Because of this responsibility, God gives pastors appropriate authority in the church. And some churches resist allowing their pastor or leaders to have any authority. Those churches, everyone gets equal say. Everyone has to have their own input. Those churches may be democratic, but they're not biblical. Those churches are like flying on an airplane in which the pilot comes out of the cockpit and into the passenger cabin in order to take a vote on how he should land the plane. I don't think you want to ride on that kind of airplane. I don't think you want to be a part of that kind of church. Let the qualified leaders lead. Understand that the pastor's authority is derived from Scripture. Okay, a pastor's authority is derived from Scripture, meaning it's not equal to Scripture. I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of 2 Peter chapter 1. Towards the end of chapter 1 in the book of 2 Peter, Peter is writing, and, and he says, you know, I have seen, I saw the transfiguration. I was there with Jesus on the mountain. I saw him veiled in glory. I saw Jesus crucified for our sins, and then I saw him resurrected from the dead, and I saw him ascending into heaven. And you would think with such marvelous experiences, eyewitness experience, that Peter could say that he had this great authority that was equal to Scripture, but he doesn't. He never says that. Instead, what Peter says, is he says that his experience has only affirmed that the Scripture is true. His experience only gave him more confidence that Scripture was true, and he points his readers to put their trust in Scripture. So be very careful of any tradition that says that a leader is equal in authority to Scripture. Leaders are never equal in authority to Scripture. Christ is the head of the church, and His Word revealed to us in Scripture is what is the ultimate authority and gives the ultimate direction and leaders are to come underneath that. Okay, so Scripture is the higher authority. And what this means for us in reading this one verse in Hebrews 
chapter 13, verse 17, is that this command to obey and submit is not absolute. Because if a pastor is not following Scripture, the people should not follow that pastor. The people should instead follow Scripture. Pastors can get out of line with Scripture. Pastors, too, are susceptible to the blinding effects of sin that lead astray. Good pastors can become bad pastors. Scripture even gives specific instructions for what church members are to do. If you believe that a pastor is living in a pattern of unrepentant sin, 2 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder. Elder, pastor is the same term here in Scripture. Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, Scripture tells you to use great caution before you make an accusation against a leader. Scripture would say, go to that leader personally with a concern with an observation, not an accusation. So just as pastors are called to watch out for the sin that blinds and binds, so you are called to watch out for the sin that blinds and binds. Okay, so pastors are not immune to sin. They don't live on this higher plane. The book of Hebrews beautifully shows us that Jesus is our mediator between God and and us. Each of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have direct access to God. If you were a follower of Jesus, you have God's own Spirit living in you, teaching you, and guiding you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the very mind of Christ to help you discern what is good, what is pure, what is holy from what is not holy. Don't take that for granted. And don't lay that aside. The last thing I want to do to you in this message is to elevate pastors as living on this higher plane because they're not. Now, when a man desires to become a leader in a church, to become a pastor, become an elder, Scripture says that he desires a good and a noble thing. Leading people in the church, pastoring people, should be a joyful thing. It is also a weighty thing. It is a very weighty thing, and only those who are qualified should lead. So Scripture cautions men from jumping into leadership presumptuously. There are specific qualifications which they must meet, and those qualifications are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Anytime that a church is looking to acknowledge someone as their pastor, they should start in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. There we see the qualifications for a pastor. But you know what the most remarkable thing about those list of qualifications is? The most remarkable thing about these lists of qualifications is how unremarkable they are. Think of what makes for an ideal presidential candidate. Someone that the American people will vote for to be their next leader. Okay, high-ranking military background is a plus to have on his resume. Right? 
A political pedigree is a plus for him or her to have on their resume. Solid record of bipartisan accomplishments, Ivy League degrees. That's what we like to look for in our presidential candidates because we want to be impressed by our leaders. But all of the qualifications for a pastor, except for one, can be found elsewhere in the New Testament as commands for every follower of Jesus. So hear this. Every single one of us is called to be above reproach. Every single one of us is called to use good judgment, to be self-controlled, to be hospitable, to be gentle, to not be a lover of money, to to not be addicted to wine, to not be quarrelsome. All of us are called to have such character and conduct. The one qualification which scholars across the board would say is the one exception, the one qualification that pastors and elders are to have that not everyone else in the church will have is the ability to teach. The ability to teach is a qualification for pastors that's not a qualification for deacons. It's what distinguishes them. Yet even some form of teaching is required for nearly all of us. If you're a parent or a grandparent, Deuteronomy 6 commands you to teach the commands of God to your children and grandchildren. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commands all of us to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that He has commanded. Titus chapter 2 commands the women to instruct the younger women to love their husbands, to be self-controlled, to be pure. Paul goes on in Titus to write that the men are to teach with integrity. So all of us will probably find in some fear in our lives that we have a role to teach. So I'm not trying to put pastors on a pedestal when I say you should submit and obey to them. Please understand that pastors do not have a more direct line to God than you do. If you visit Jerusalem today, your tour guide might throw out this joke that you can reach God anywhere in the world through prayer, but in Jerusalem, it's a direct call. They believe that there. And a lot of churches today believe that the pastors have this direct line, a direct extension to God, that they don't have. But that's not true. Hebrews dispels that myth. You don't need to go through a pastor to talk to God. You have direct access through Christ. Christ is our mediator. So I point out how unremarkable the qualifications are for pastors in comparison to the commanded characteristics for every member of the church so that you don't think that pastors walk hovering on higher ground. So get this. Your submission to your church leaders is really just your submission to Christ. You see that? If pastors are not above you in in their 
value, then you submitting to them is just your recognition that that's how Christ has designed the church to be led. And so you are going to submit to Christ's design. You are going to submit to Christ himself. So you don't need to wait until you feel like you can trust your pastor and leaders before you submit to them. Trust God. Trust God and submit to his plan for how the church is to be led. And have a bent of trusting your leaders. The next phrase in Hebrews 13, 17 speaks of the pastor's responsibility. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. We've mentioned that because of indwelling sin that blinds and binds and leads astray, there is a need for attentive watch care over our souls. And pastors are continually charged to keep watch on behalf of your souls. They are to be the ones who are awake and vigilant in spiritual matters. And they do this for the good of your soul. Watching is not the only responsibility of a pastor, but it is a most crucial responsibility. In 1 Timothy 4.16, pastors are called to watch their own life and doctrine. Pastors watch the word. They study the word so that they might know how to rightly teach you the word. Acts 20 says that pastors are to keep watch over each other. And here in Hebrews 13.17, they are to watch over your souls. Pastors keep watch over your souls by watching for wrong influences that might lead you astray, for watching for wrong and false doctrines that might lead you astray. They watch for cultural shifts that might carry you away from the faith. So pastors are like shepherds. That's the big image here, that pastors are like shepherds watching over their flock. And please understand that shepherds don't watch over their sheep for their own glory and fame. Being a shepherd is not a glamorous thing. They do it on behalf of the flock. They watch night and day for their protection. Shepherds watch outside the flock for wolves that might come in and harm. And they watch within the flock to make sure no one goes astray. In June 2010, the Tampa Bay News 10 reported that a man named Jerry Whipple was found asleep on a pool float more than a mile from the Bel Air Air Beach coast. It made the news because he was so far away from shore, asleep, on his little pool float, that he had to be rescued by the Coast Guard. Now, just so I paint an accurate picture, Jerry Whipple did have a little too much to drink, right? But think about this. It's likely that Jerry Whipple had gone to the beach with his little pool floaty, and he had relaxed in the ocean several times, and nothing ever happened. He was never in any danger, but this time, evidently, he was alone. 
If he had been on the beach with friends or family, then surely they would have called to him and got his attention or swam out to him and brought him back to shore before he drifted too far away. If he had been on a beach where there was a lifeguard watching over the people in the ocean, then that lifeguard would have rescued him before he got too far away. But Jerry Whipple was alone as he floated in the ocean. And it allowed him to drift more than a mile away from shore. That's a good picture of us. Not that we regularly get intoxicated and go out on the beach, I hope. But that sin has an intoxicating effect. And if we push others away and we say, I got this on my own, we are very likely to drift away and into danger. So if you understand that you are prone to drift away because sin so easily blinds us and it grips us without us even realizing it, if you realize that about yourself, then you will be so thankful for men who step up and offer to watch your life. Who offer to watch on behalf of your souls. Who seek to protect you from this blinding effect of sin and to help guide you to stay on course. So why love your pastor? Because your pastor is committed to helping you stay on course. Pastors, godly pastors, are a gift of God to the church, to his people, for God's glory and for the good of the people. Understand also that, as I mentioned, this vigilance required of a pastor to watch over the souls of his people is a very weighty thing. The next phrase in verse 17 says, that they do this as those who will have to give an account. The way I understand this is that I, as a pastor, am not going to be held responsible for the actions of the people that I lead, but I will be held responsible for how I lead the people. One day, I will stand before God and give an account for how I lead the people entrusted under my care. And that is a very weighty thing. Michael will one day stand before God and give an account for how he leads the people of First Baptist Iker. So if you find yourself speculating about a pastor's motives, instead of trusting your pastor, remember that he will give an account before God. And a pastor who understands that weight, understands that accountability that is coming to him on a day of evaluation before God, that pastor will make every decision based on what is for God's glory and for the good of his people. When people have a bent towards trusting their pastors, the responsibility of a pastor, though weighty, becomes a privilege. It is a joy to lead people under Christ who already submit to Christ. 
and it makes pastors happy when his people trust him. And a happy pastor is good for you. Do you see how verse 17 ends? It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Trusting your pastor is to your own advantage. And just think about it. Do you want someone who is caring for your soul to do it joyfully or groaning? Please do not underestimate the influence that you have in how well your pastor cares for you. Happy pastors who are trusted by the people God calls them to lead lead better. It's as simple as that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has been deemed the prince of preachers. There's not a single pastor that I know who would not love to be able to go back in time and sit under Spurgeon's preaching. Even if we had a DVD of his preaching, that would be so desirable because then we would know what it is. We could see for ourselves what it was that made his preaching so great, so marvelous, so powerful. Well, Spurgeon was asked one time, what is it that is the most important thing in your preaching? What is it that makes your preaching so great? And Spurgeon's reply was my people pray for me. As we've been going along in this message, perhaps you're struggling to put together how you are to trust someone that is also susceptible to sin. How is it that you are to give your trust to someone who may in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, God forbid, be off with the secretary? The answer is prayer. Prayer is a demonstration of trusting God. Submitting and obeying your leaders is a demonstration of trusting God. So isn't it interesting that in the very next verse, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, the author requests prayer from his people. The most powerful thing that you can do, the greatest thing that you can do for your pastor is to pray for your pastor. So here today, I want to know, will you commit to praying for Michael? Will you make that commitment today that you will pray for Michael? Pray also for your leadership team. And here are some things that you can pray. You'll be able to think of more things, but I encourage you to jot this down. Jot these things down that you can pray for Michael. Pray that the gospel would be the focal point of his life and identity. You know, it is so easy for pastors to drift into defining themselves and the success of their ministry 
based on comparing themselves with others. But pray that Michael would only define himself through the lens of the gospel. Number two, pray for Michael. Pray that his joy would be in Jesus and not his circumstances. Number three, pray for Michael. Pray that the Spirit would lead his preparation and empower his presentation. One of his greatest responsibilities is to teach you God's Word. So pray that God's Spirit would lead him in his preparation for his sermons and then empower him for his proclamation of his sermons. Number four, pray for Michael. Pray that he would not fear man. That he would not fear man by desiring the admiration of people, but that he would look towards that future grace, towards that promise that is ahead, and that that well-done, good, and faithful servant would forever be before his eyes. That that would be the motivating, driving force for him, rather than the approval of man. Number five, pray for Michael. Pray that God would give him wisdom and discernment to make bold decisions for the glory of God and the good of his people. Pray for wisdom. Number six, pray for Michael. Pray for his family and his leadership at home. And then lastly, number seven, pray that he would continue to grow in the character qualities of a man of God. Open up your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy and turn to Titus and read those qualifications of a pastor and pray that Michael would be growing in each one of those qualities. You have incredible power at your disposal to help your leaders lead well. So will you commit to praying for your leaders? Ask the worship team to go ahead and come and lead us in this time of response. And as they come, how has God's Spirit been pricking your heart today? How is it that you need to show trust in Christ? Use this time to nail down a commitment that you will move forward trusting Christ so that you will stay the course. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the message today, a message that we don't always like to hear. We don't like to submit and obey to other people, people who, who are fallen just like us. But Father, that's your design, and, and we want to submit to your design for the church. We want to be people who are led by you, and we want to be people that follow with glad and joyful hearts. Father, I pray that you would bind this church together in unity 
that this church would come around Michael and his family and the leadership team here and, and they would say, we are willing to follow as you follow Christ. And that they would be a people that bring him much joy and ultimately would bring you much joy. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. In this life, we will not always get our way, and that's a good thing. But that hope that we just sung about, in the end, for all eternity, you will be ours. And that is more than enough. That is the greatest treasure that we could ever have. So we give you glory and we give you praise. And with hope and anticipation, we look forward to the promises which you will fulfill in Christ for us. It's for his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. All right, you guys may be seated. I want to give you just kind of one little note. Um, a lot of times you see the, some of these ladies like Pat come up here and, and pray, and, and they, they bring a, a box. And Pat just wanted me to clarify that there are not snakes in that box, <laughs> right? That is actually for, um, they're praying for the, the children here, and uh, it's a ministry of the church. And, um, and so just, just wanted you guys to know about that. Kenny, do you have our announcements today? Kenny? Come and lead us. Brian, I just want to tell you thank you uh, so much on behalf of our church. Uh, you have finished well. And I think... I think you showed your heart today uh, in the message that you preached. And Lynn, uh, we love you guys, and uh, you will always be a part of us. And can't wait till we get to heaven and uh, we get all this church stuff behind us, and we can just finally be with the one that we're all here for anyway. Um, our deacon of the week this week is uh, in the uh, nursery this morning, so I can't show him to you. Oh nope, he's back here in the back, uh, McDowell. And I know, uh, I know his heart, and I know that he, uh, he would love to serve you in any way that he can this week. Um, also, of course, you guys know about our installation service uh, next week uh, for Pastor Michael. Uh, please be here at 9 a.m. Um, Wisdom Walkers, they'll have a covered dish uh, lunch this Tuesday at February 12th uh, at 11 a, 11.30 in the modulars. Uh, also, um, for our children, Tuesday summer camps, that uh, beginning planning uh, is starting to take place. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, every Tuesday uh, our kids have the ability to, to get together uh, throughout the week uh, or on Tuesdays, kindergarten through fifth grade, and, and learn something. So if, you have, uh, if you'd like to volunteer to host a camp day, please see Audrey Duncan. Our Youth Fund Barbecue is coming up. Uh, it's about a month from now. And so please see uh, Ned Beck. Uh, they need a lot of help. And uh, any way that you can uh, give that to them, please see uh, Ned and see Mike orders for tickets. Also, our spring and summer uh, children's consignment sale coming up uh, March 14th through the 16th. Um, see Kim Atkins to register for that. Our greeting team will need to meet for about five minutes right after uh, worship and see Miss Cindy Beck in the back. And our last one, uh, I'm going to turn over to Brother Jimmy. So.
Okay, a couple of things about this coming week. First of all, we're planning to help Michael move in on Saturday morning. Pray for suitable weather. That's the biggest thing right now, so pray for that. Second, we won't know until late Friday evening whether he will have already gotten everything packed up and will be coming right in uh, so that we can help unload. So our plan is this. Uh, men, we're going to meet together at 6 at Granny's, have breakfast, Dutch treat together, and we'll know then whether we need to go to Ellenborough to help him load up the rest of it, or we'll come right on over to the parsonage and help him unload. So that part's a little iffy, but uh, we're still going to meet for breakfast. We'll go from there. So be there for breakfast, and we'll uh, have a enjoyable time, and then we'll work. The other thing about the uh, installation service, we're going to have a number of guests with us. Uh, we're already uh, trying to figure out enough chairs and so forth. We may have 200 or more here. So uh, I would ask that uh, our church membership, if you will park out away from the building, Park over in the sanctuary lot. Park maybe in uh, some of the grassy area so that guests can get closer to the church. That would just be a good host on our part. But we're looking forward to that. Uh, Amy's lining up some women to help unload and place things. And hopefully by uh, next Saturday night we'll have the family all in place and everything ready to go for Sunday morning. So thank you for your help, and we look forward to that event this uh, Saturday. No other announcements? Okay, the nursery next Sunday. Uh, what we're going to do is just uh, bring children back out uh, or have them out here. Uh, the folks in the nursery uh, want to see the installation service. If a child gets a little bit rowdy or needs to go out, uh, Lori Orders is going to help with that. But basically, we thought children need to see how the church works. And so this will be a great opportunity for that, to see the installation, see all the other things. So if you'll uh, just work with us, we'll get through that without any problems. Anything else? Uh, mission thing tonight. Okay, this is in the bulletin tonight at 6, right here in the worship center. We're going to have two treats. The ladies are going to do rice dishes of all kinds, and the men are doing desserts. Men, better bring your A game. I've already talked to several folks, and there are some good desserts to be had. So come and enjoy. We're going to have a great time tonight. Anything else? Okay, you're dismissed to Lagrup.